And so I, I generally would really encourage anyone who's who's making this transition, particularly in the break line community, if they're going to enter into this space and they're naturally inclined to work in software, take a little bit more of an extra risk. Like don't just go where the puck might be at that present moment, just skate a little bit further ahead and pick an area where it might be in the future. Be okay with the fact that you might fail once or twice when you make that riskier choice, but you can always have a fallback of coming back to a big company if you ever want to. You're not going to you're not going to be shunned out of a big company because you had some challenges in the the hardship of of building inside of a startup environment. And and generally, just make sure that when you're doing that and you're trying to skate to where the puck is, just have a point of view on you know, the next five, ten years or fifteen years of where it's all going to go, and at least try to pick some of the categories that have some structural tailwind associated with it. doing out there folks this is your host with the most kenny vaughn i play for team breakline and i am joined once again with the dynamic ladies of the arena what is up everybody it is sophia and i play for team breakline hey everybody this is bethany i play for team breakline and i'm i wish you could see me i have this huge smile because kenny vaughn when he kicks off these conversations he does this big fist bump and it's such a great way to get the energy up. It gets Damn us going. Yeah. Y'all know we are here for y'all. We, we trying to bring some hope. We trying to bring some inspiration to your day. And so we're going to start with a thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Breakline Arena. Bethany, would you mind telling us a little bit more about George Matthew? I know he is a managing director at Insight Partners. But for those who might not be in the know, can you shed a little light? as to who George is. Absolutely. It was um, such a pleasure to spend time with George. I first met him, I think it was 2016 or 2017 when he was the CEO of Kespri. And he came to one of the very first Breakline programs and spoke about his career. He's so dynamic. He's so interesting. And I just have looked up to him ever since. And his career has spanned sort of the who's who of of tech companies. He spent time at Salesforce, at SAP, at Arcteryx, where he was COO and president. And then he was CEO of Kespri before moving on to Insight in his investing role. And one of the reasons why I gravitated to George is because of his leadership style. We talk about this in the conversation. He's got this wonderful combination of guts and heart. And I was asking him about it because he's like the opposite of sort of the, the Silicon Valley caricature, which is like very brash and, you know, and maybe broy. George is the opposite of that. He's so kind, he's so thoughtful, he's so humble. And he, in in what I thought was a poignant moment, said it was actually when he started watching Ted Lasso that he finally (laughs) felt like he had found a language (laughs) for describing his approach to leadership. And he really did, he really does feel like that it is anchored in courage and kindness. And that does seem to be what George personifies. I know that we are gonna have so many listeners who are hyped to listen to that. Mm. I personally thought that that there was, speaking to what you were saying, Bethany, about guts and heart, that guts part, he he sheds a bunch of light on the idea of taking a risk within a growth industry and software being that hyper growth industry. He was talking about see where the puck is going and just skate towards it. Go as hard as you can in that direction. Y'all know I love a hockey analogy, but this guy really was giving some really actionable advice. And I think that that our listeners are gonna have a lot of key takeaways. And you know, I, I love that you mentioned that, Sophia, because I think as we're trying to navigate these professional decisions, sometimes it just helps to have a framework to operate from. And to see someone who has lived that out real time and has made it out on the other side to tell the story. I thought that was really cool to hear in his own words. The other part of this conversation that I really loved, and it was a little bit towards the tail end of the conversation, was when he just shared the importance of communication. Bethany asked him a question about just personal and professional and making big decisions and operating efficiently. And one of the really key insights that he shared is the importance of communication flow. And whenever there's been friction, whenever there's been pain points, 
you could almost trace it back to the need to improve that communication. And so I think for all of our listeners, as we're trying to navigate these places and spaces to be able to communicate with our peers and our partners and the people who are in our circle of trust and our tribe, it's such an important part of this journey and I'm really glad that he emphasized that as well. So truly an insightful conversation. I think our listeners are gonna take away a ton as per usual. So without further ado, maybe we should give the Breakline faithful what they came here for. Let's do it. We will see you guys on the other side. Welcome everybody. This is Bethany Coates from Breakline Education. I'm here with one of my favorite people, George Matthew, Managing Director at Insight Partners. George, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Bethany. I really appreciate this uh, opportunity and spend some time with the Breakline community. Well, I've been looking forward to it. George, you were one of the earliest people to come and support Breakline when you were CEO of Kespri. For example, mm-hmm. you came and, and spoke, I think it was maybe 2016 or 2017 or something. You came to BMC and and spoke. And so I've been following you in your career since then and have really been looking forward to sharing part of your story. And like any good book or any good story, I want to start in the middle of your career. You've, you've had this amazing journey. You Prior to Insight, you were CEO of Kespri for about five years. You were CEO of Alteryx for about five years. You were at SAP for five years, Salesforce before that. You've kind of migrated through the who's who of the tech community. And I want to start actually at a moment that wasn't about triumph Mm because you've had so many of those. It was actually a moment of heartbreak in some ways. Mm -hmm. When you were at Salesforce a couple years in, Mark Benioff fired you. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. And and by the way, this was like kind of still early in your career, but also a career that you'd had a rapid ascent up to that point. It's not like you were familiar with, you know, with being fired. What did you learn from that experience? No, and thanks for asking me. It was it, it's one of these these moments where you look back upon it and you realize how much an opportunity and a challenge that presents itself like you know being fired by mark at salesforce in the prime of uh, your career almost sort of transcends and kind of recreates who you become as an individual yeah. and a leader i think for me personally at that time we were going through a lot of changes at salesforce a lot of growth was occurring simultaneous to some of the challenges of kind of the the, the effective things that were needed to build at that time, the first cloud company at scale. And what became clear was that we were just not fully ready to get to the level of scale that was needed and the investments that were needed. And that's where we had some real challenges, right? In terms Mm -hmm. of how, you know, customers were being able to be managed. And my job at that time was first technical account manager. And we had some real issues back in, call it the sort of 2005, 2006 timeframe in terms of being able to to scale up our cloud infrastructure at Salesforce. I think for me personally, I know that I was on the front line, right? My, my mm-hmm. responsibility was to, to be able to support some of the largest clients of Salesforce at that time as they were scaling up in their cloud journey. And when things did not work, someone had to almost be the the front and center person who was the the centerpiece of some of that 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 set of challenges that the customers were running into and also the voice in terms of what the customers needed at that time to salesforce i didn't personally expect to be fired at that moment i thought this was something that i would be able to to work through it just uh, as uh, as i was certainly you know kind of building up a that portion of my career. I think less important than getting fired or, or, or not, I think is is just what you do about a situation like that. Yeah. Right? I, th- I think I think everyone in their careers, if if they don't get fired, I think is actually, they're not doing themselves a, a, a service. Like they haven't put themselves out there. They haven't challenged yes. themselves. They haven't found moments that they're probably finding themselves slightly ahead of their skis in yeah. their, their overall journey. And I think in my case, I will say that that was a profound, you know, moment for me where I, 
I, mm -hmm. I didn't exactly know what was going to happen next in my career. I had to almost kind of take stock of a lot of personal and professional areas of focus for myself. And what it, what it did enable me to do was, was it did enable me to refocus myself, right? Mm -hmm. I, I got back to my core principles of what I stood for, what I cared about, what was mm. important to me on a personal and professional basis and had an opportunity to reset a number of things, uh, a few things, including like just my own personal life. I was yeah. married at that time, just a few years. And I knew that there was an imbalance between personal and professional time, particularly being newly married. I was mm -hmm. able to kind of rethink a few things as far as areas where I was missing overall skills in my, my career development, where I just kind of kept going up one portion of the, the ladder, for instance, inside of a software company, which was at that time was mostly sales and services, but didn't actually have a lot of experience on product engineering and the work that was necessary to build versus to, to sell and to, mm. to deliver products into market. And so I took that opportunity to go back and, and learn some of those, those skills more effectively. Didn't have much experience from a marketing standpoint. And so I think a number of those, those opportunities that present itself when a dramatic event like, oh, wow, you just got fired from a pretty pretty visible role, mm -hmm. I would almost kind of take that as an opportunity to, to reset, right? To, yeah. to, to be able to think about what your key personal and professional priorities are. And also it gives an opportunity to, to just, just understand like who is available to help you through that journey. I mean, even, mm. even as I recall going through that, it, it wasn't as lonely as, as one would have thought there was, you know, great professional and personal mentors, many of them who were my former bosses that quickly became my mentors, um, mm -hmm. that wanted to make sure that, that there was a good place that I ended up landing. I think for me personally at that time, it also enabled me to reset some of my, my skills as well. And I actually went yeah. back to business school at that time to, to just not only have the, the personal journey, you know, be reimagined, but also some of the key skills that were necessary for the future mm. of my my professional journey also mm -hmm. being applied and, and reset in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess at the end of it, I just came out a better person, right? I was able to, mm -hmm. I was able to go back and require some of those skills that I felt I was missing. I ended up landing uh, a number of, of roles subsequently at SAP that were just in a series of, of, of growing responsibilities, even to the point that I remember in 2008 at the great cloud debate that Hassel Plattner, who was the chairman of SAP mm. and Mark Benioff, who was of course the CEO and chairman of Salesforce, were all together at the Computer History Museum in in California in, in Mountain View. And I, I had a brief chance to see, to see Mark and, and Mark was like, hey, George, what are you coming back to Salesforce again, right? So it was always this, <laughs> this, this moment where where you realize like, okay, the, even even the most troubling times that you might yeah. go through, like being fired by Mark uh, Benioff always kind of turns out to be a bit of a an opportunity to kind of rebuild yourself and grow from, yes. from that experience. Yes. I'm so glad that you told that story, George, and there are a couple different reasons why. One of the reasons why I have respected you so much from the first time that we met is how you show up as a leader in, in Silicon Valley and in sure. general. And I experience you with a lot of kindness, a lot of thoughtfulness. You're so humble and you have so much substance in addition to your brilliance, you know, which we can all see from the track record. And it's just such a different type of executive presence than I think Silicon Valley is best known for in some ways in terms of like the brash, like swashbuckling kind of leader. And I think that it's so powerful and it feels to me like an underpinning of it is compassion and empathy for other people. And I was wondering if it was because you worked through something tough you worked through a failure and came out the other side stronger. I think so. I think so. I, if, if we think about, if I think about where, where I was prior to that moment and I, if I think about myself, how, how I effectively re reformatted myself over the, over that period of time, I think there was, 
there, there'd be a different set of descriptions around who I was as a, as a leader. I think mm -hmm. former to that moment, it was like pretty, pretty brash, pretty, mm -hmm. pretty arrogant myself mm -hmm. in terms of how I did things and, you know, accomplished, you know, the day-to-day -day of, of, of getting work done inside of an organization. And I think subsequent to it, I think most people would describe me as, as more compassionate, more collaborative, more willing to, to see multiple sides of how decisions get best made and mm -hmm. just a kinder person. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think it's because you do have stronger empathy towards a challenge in anyone's life as they go through it, when you've gone through your own challenges, right. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's, it's a whole lot more straightforward when you have had something that's relatable in your own life that you can then bring back to a conversation, whether it be in the context of building a company and now more recently as, as a venture capitalist. I was fascinated about this past year going into venture capital because mm -hmm. I did not think it would be a natural transition for you know, mm -hmm. someone who's got 20 plus years of being an operator to suddenly turn a page and become a, a venture capitalist. And mm -hmm. I always thought like, okay, an operator who has very little venture capital experience is actually going to be considered somewhat a, a bug in the ecosystem. And what I realized was that all of that time that I had spent mm -hmm. in understanding and building and having stronger empathy and how hard the journey is for yeah. many founders and entrepreneurs to build their companies, that was effectively a feature like people mm -hmm. people knew that i understood what their challenges were in a in a much more shorthanded way than most investors who have not gone through the hardship of building companies and mm -hmm. i think i think it was this past week that there was a, a number of, of postings about this topic that now the operator is considered the it investor <laughs> and i think yeah, it's because yeah. of this this exact thing right because yeah. operators who have had some experience in going through some of these challenges and hardships in their careers are more empathetic to the founder journey as they become mm -hmm. investors themselves. And mm -hmm. it certainly has proven itself out for me personally this past year in being part of Insight and being able to just really relate to this next generation of mm -hmm. founders and entrepreneurs as they proceed in their journey. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into that a little bit more. You talked about in the in in the aftermath of leaving salesforce you talked about having a lot of help both professionally and personally and i imagine some of that support came from your wife and i was thinking about satyan sangani who uh we interviewed a short time ago and he told this great story he's a he's a good friend of yours and he told this great story about when he was at oracle his wife saying I'm not going to be married to a bitter old man who never mm -hmm. pursued his dream of starting a company. Mm -hmm. And then after that, he co-founded or he founded Alation, which he, which he runs as CEO. Amazing. Yeah. But he described that leap going from like a big company to a startup. He described it as really, you know, needing an extraordinary amount of courage to, to take that step. Was the leap from Kespri, where you were most recently CEO, to Insight, did you feel like it was a natural next step or did you feel like you had to dig deep and, you know, and really stretch to go after it? I think that the, the size of where Kespri was and, of course, the scale at which Insight was, were, was, was clearly different. I mean, about relatively speaking, the same number of employees, but like a different, you know, type of work, a different, you know, scale and capital, of course, with, with where Insight is. And I think the biggest thing that I, that I felt was just the difference of being an entrepreneur slash CEO slash, you know, someone who understands being a software executive versus coming to the other side of the equation and being a, an investor in software. And I think yeah. that was the bigger concern that I had, like, you know, mm -hmm. I had dabbled in some angel investments over the years. I had helped other venture capitalists make investments and mm -hmm. advise them on what the right thing to do was. But it wasn't my name that was on that term sheet. Like that mm -hmm. was that was the first first opportunity and a, and a first set of experiences for me, particularly this past year of coming over to venture capital and doing that. So so in, in that case, it was mostly a shift in skill set. Like you mm -hmm. were 
no longer a scaled out CEO slash management person who was you know working through a variety of leadership roles inside of software. You were now coming over to being an investor who really understood software and was making capital decisions in terms of the allocation of capital at scale into the software sector. I think as I as I made that transition, one of the things I realized is like you just have to bring a different set of of skills, right? And mm-hmm. and in that regard, a lot of your skills that were about managing people and managing time and managing resources changed to making a much more analytical decision on why it made sense to make an investment and then being, of course, quickly being able to build the empathy with the founders that were necessary to convince them that your capital in a lot of ways was better than the 10 other options that that a founder would have in terms of taking capital, particularly in the Valley right now. What what is um, What's pretty clear to me now is that when you look back at, at this past year in particular, I know that parts of this, this, this sort of shift going into venture were kind of nicely well built up with the fact that I had this years of, of, of operating experience, but I also needed to just learn a new set of skills that I never mm-hmm. had before. I, I didn't write term sheets. I didn't do huge amounts of, of, of modeling, which helps understand what the return curve looks like for investment at any point in time versus what it would look like several years from now. And those are new skills in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's where I thought a little bit about where things were in my own sort of personal life at that moment there, Bethany, because we were in the middle of COVID and I, I started to realize that as a CEO that was working in a very distributed environment over time and we're largely we're going to be moving more towards distributed environments. There's a whole new set of skills that a CEO would need to learn anyway. And so if I was like, okay, look, if I'm going to learn a whole new set of skills anyway, why would I not try this, this area within the, the overall software ecosystem, which is, you know, the venture capital side of things where there'd be a new set of skills being acquired and frankly, just a new role that you could reimagine yourself going into that you were mostly set up for, but you just haven't, you know, had the full experience to go execute on until you actually do it. And uh, thankfully at Insight, I had a wonderful backdrop and a platform to be able to execute at scale this past year. I think it's so cool that you made that decision George, because I could see a lot of people just thinking, meh, <laughs> you know, like I made it to the CEO job, like I'm, you know, I'm at the top of the mountain. I'm just going to stay here because this is where I'm comfortable. I'm familiar. I'm executing at an incredibly high level. And instead, you said, I'm going to go learn a new skill set and reinvent the next phase of my career. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. I think it takes a lot of resilience to do that. Is that how you read the situation? Yeah, I I, I now realize that it is it is it is a climb to to get to some level of proficiency. It helps that I have an opportunity to work with the the the, the insight sort of team and, and the scale that we have at Insight Partners right now. It just does enable some of those skills to be acquired faster, just because mm. there's more capital at work, there's more deals. That are, that are in place. And um, that has certainly helped in accelerating some of the, the, the knowledge and skills that are required. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the easiest thing for me to have done was be a second time CEO. Yeah. Not to be a first time venture capitalist. Right. Way, way easier would have been to be a second time CEO. I just think it's so awesome. And I, I do wonder, you know, I think you, you kind of talked about going through the gauntlet and having this forging experience at Salesforce, and it's so hard when you're in the middle of an experience like that, but once you've gone through it, you're like 10 times tougher and 10 times smarter and 10 times more aware of the fact that you can bounce back. And Mm -hmm. I just wonder if knowing that you could succeed because you had failed and bounced back, I wonder if you drew some additional energy from that and just knew that even if it was hard, you would get there. I think the moment that you have these phenomenal failures in life and, and I, I, I would, 
there was there's an internal way that they described my departure from Salesforce. It was, and they literally said something to the effect, that, I mean, these are these are friends too, by the way. So it's always fun when friends say stuff like this. Like, yeah, it was like Icarus flew too close to the sun and his wings melted and he fell into the ocean and he drowned. Right. So that's that's the the narrative and the description. So when you go through something like that, that really does help you reimagine and be able to be more thoughtful and more resilient about anything else that comes afterwards because it just isn't going to get as hard as that moment in time it just isn't right and so because of that just you just get a a better perspective i think one of my one of my favorite sort of bosses and mentors over time was uh it it was susan st ledger she she was at salesforce at the time and when she ran global services she's now the president of Okta, she was previously president of Splunk, and we got to be very close over the years. I mean, initially, of course, when I worked for her, but then subsequently, just as as a, as a mentor to me. And at some point in in Susan's career, she worked at the NSA, right? And that was mm-hmm. very early in her career. And she would tell me, "It's like George, you know, the things that I saw in that job, and the things that we had to just deal with at that moment in time when you know mm-hmm. she was an analyst at the NSA." It's like, I don't think I will ever see anything in life that'll phase me more than the things that yeah. I had to deal with at that present moment, <laughs> right? And, and, it, and it just kind of says like, okay, like, you know, you're almost defined in a lot of ways by the hardest thing you've ever yes. encountered in your life because everything yes. up, up to that point and everything subsequent to that point, mm-hmm. you'll just be able to work through because of this, this moment of mm-hmm. hardship that you found in, in, in your life. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think the, the best founders in the world are the ones that continue to show up every day, despite the challenges that they run into in terms of building their companies. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, the most incredible founder journeys, they were never in a lot of ways up and to the right as a rocket ship like this. Mm-hmm. And most founder journeys, these are, you know, oscillating roller coasters that eventually go all the way to the peak that you're trying to achieve. But it's never as easy as, you know, would be described in the in the most romanticized sense of what a startup journey looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, will you talk to us about what you're looking for in the folks that you're investing in now? You know, given your your experience as an operator, it gives you such terrific insight into what it takes to build a world-changing company. You've lived that. And so what is it that that you're looking for in particular in the folks that you invest in? So I think one of the things that I've been observing in the shift in software this past decade and where we are today is that every sector of software or subsector of software is as big as the entire software universe was even mm-hmm. 10 years ago. So if you look at like data, for instance, the size of data companies and the scale at which the data category operates today is as big as all of software was you know, a decade ago. So the first thing I try to do is I just try to focus first and foremost to not try to go after anything and everything inside of software, right? Because the sector itself has become so large. It's, 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 it's almost sort of, as, as certain people have said over time, begun to eat the world, right? Mm-hmm. And as, as that, that software narrative has begun to eat the world, you just have to be able to sort of focus on subsectors of software just to be capable and thoughtful about it. And in my case, that just means you know, where my background has been mostly for the last 15 plus years, which is data, analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. In that context, there is almost a a selection of founders that I almost sort of bi-directionally self-select, right? Because they naturally gravitate towards the background that I've had going into being an investor. And I naturally gravitate towards the founders that have a lot more experience in AI, ML, data analytics workloads because that's the area that just just automatically fits in terms of the domain expertise and the thoughtfulness that I can provide and the the the, the narrative that they're going to to be able to cast into into a fundraising conversation and and once that's the, the case like okay you've got domain specificity you have an investor that kind of knows what he or she is doing in that space and you have a founder that's that's very focused then you go into a lot more of the specifics right you know it's like 
how does that particular set of products and capabilities that that team is building relate back to the rest of the the, the subsector? You know, how competitive is it over time? How do we think about just the ability for them to scale uh, most effectively? Do they have the right team to do that? And then the discussion almost always becomes the what is the the joint plan? Like, how can we help you get to the next level of scale in your business? And why is there a thoughtful level of domain expertise? And what, you know, someone like myself leading a round with that founder could be insight having a large scale ability, not only to deploy capital, but also to be able to provide some of the key resources that are necessary to build great software companies and package that up in a way that's most attributable for founders just to be kind of excited that this is the right choice for their next next deployment or next use of capital to scale their business. And and I think that that has worked pretty well, right? I mean, I mean, I, I, I without getting into the details, there's there's more coming, but at least publicly now announced, I, you know, I've worked on at least 11 deals and there's, there's more that will be announced pretty shortly. But, you know, even in a very short period of time to have, you know, 11, 12 deals in that specific domain focused with founders that are very thoughtful around data and analytics, it's because of the things I just mentioned, right? Just mm. the, the the focus on the domain, the ability to just understand what the founder needs and what we think is a good opportunity, and then being able to build, bring the right tools to them to be able to build great companies together. George, you only joined Insight like ten months ago. Hmm. Did you do eleven yeah. deals in ten months? Well, well, technically, I, it's 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 a lot more than that, but but eleven <laughs> officially, yes. <laughs> then eleven yeah, that yeah, we so, know about. George, yeah, eleven that, that 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 we know about Bethany. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's awesome. So, I've heard many CEOs say, and many leaders in general, that <clears throat> the stuff that keeps them up at night is not the product, it's not the business, it's interpersonal dynamics with the team. Mm-hmm. It's like the people stuff. Is that true as an investor too? Like the, the things that actually keep you up at night that you wrestle with, that you find yourself thinking about, you know, and, and struggling to unpack and, and get through, is it still mm-hmm. people stuff or is it something else in this new role? I think it, I think it mostly still is. I think right now we're in a world where there's almost sort of two classes of founders. There's a class of founder that has been there, done it. They probably don't need much help. They they can just get it done without a whole lot of input from thoughtful investors that can help them shape the journey. And then there's a class of founder who's you know first time, maybe second time at it. They've they they've either never done it before or did it once before to know that there's things that they shouldn't do and that there's things that they should do better. And they still want to get a good amount of help to, to build the, the appropriate journey that, that's necessary for success in, in their specific area of the market. I think the, the, the gravitational pull that I have is towards founders that need help, like the, the, mm-hmm. that, that, that want to work with, with an operator like myself who has become a venture capitalist that still brings a little bit of an operational mindset to how an investment is made. And I, I think that that is a people-oriented situation because it's, it's not only the relationship that you have with your founder, but it's also just helping them think about how to build a management team. Like what's working there? Like where are things in the overall management team that they have that could be improved upon? What are things that are areas that we should be thinking about for the next several years as we as we build for growth and all of that comes down to to people right in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i think the i think the moments where there are founding teams that really know what they're doing in a way that they sometimes they believe they didn't know what they're doing right and and therefore uh, they don't they don't want any help even though even though they don't know they need it but that the, but they, they believe they don't want it i think i think those are the the times where I actually don't try to go after that opportunity and mm. pursue that specific founder because there's almost kind of a mismatch at that point, right? Because if they don't want 
any help and your primary brand is that you can help them, it, it just never works out well over time because there isn't this, this fundamental sort of connection between the investor, in my case, and the founder who, who wants the help in building to scale in the journey that, they're, that they've set themselves on. So I've seen now a situation where about half the folks I talk to really appreciate having a former scaled out operator now as an investor helping them in their journey. And then I've seen certainly a, a, another half of founding teams just say, you know what, we've got this. And, and that's totally fine. Usually when I, you know, when I have conversations, particularly with founding teams early, I try to almost get a feel for what type of founding team they are. And mm -hmm. if they're ones that, that need and want help, I can, I can be there for them. And if they don't, then there's probably a better set of investors for them to work with. Hmm. Even within the last couple of years, it might even be up to this point, there's, there seems to have been a prevailing view amongst VCs that founders know best and that the preferred option is for founders to stay in place as CEOs and continue to build their companies. But then there have been some really like highly visible counter factuals as well. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that because you have been a non-founder CEO multiple mm -hmm. times. So I think your, your perspective is really interesting on this point. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 sort, I wasn't the CEO of Altrix, but I was very much oh, near and dear to the CEO as, as a president yeah. and, and chief operating officer, right? And yeah. have had an opportunity to help scale Altrix from its early roots to, you know, all the way to, to public company readiness. Mm. And then certainly, you know, as a non-founder CEO at Caspery, certainly a number of experiences working through all the transitions that Caspery had to make to go from its initial roots as a hardware-based drone company into a more software-based analytics company. Mm. I think the... Um, the thing I've, I, I've noticed in particularly those journeys and working with founders, I think early in any company's life cycle, it is important to really be behind the founder and let mm. that vision be executed and be supportive of founders in them driving to to the to the vision that they they've had in terms of where that company that where that product within the market should go and and being able to help you know them scale that journey effectively i think over time the reason that a founder might not be the right leader to to take a company forward is that the the vision has almost run out of gas right and that happens uh, i think there are Founders that can go all the way and have continuous vision all the way into 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 decades in the journey. I mean, look at look at you know Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I mean, who would imagine uh, anyone else but them to be doing the things that they did to this date? And even then, like, there's a lot of questions now, right, in terms of what the transition for Amazon looks like post Jeff Bezos, right? And there's a lot that the world is leaning in on for Elon to be successful with both SpaceX and, and with Tesla. And I think that's that's one class of founder. I mean, that's a very unique and special class of founder for sure that, that uh, we see there. But I, but I think in most, in most founder journeys, there is a moment that they run out of gas way sooner than that, right? And I mm -hmm. think that the best thing a founder can do at that moment, you know, is to have a conversation, right? To have a conversation with, their, their family, their friends, the, their investors or their board, and just figure out what the right transition is, right? You, you still have like this amazing thing you built that you can continue to, to see it grow and scale. And it just doesn't mean that you have to necessarily be the, the CEO, for instance, to do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that happens very early in a journey, like in the case of in the case of Caspery, that was that was um, how how the transition was made. There was literally no CEO in, in Caspery when I had joined, and then sometimes that happens well into almost public company readiness, right? That you would you would consider a a change in in who the who the founder is and and why you would bring in a call it professional management team. I think the best times 
to do this. And the best way to do this oftentimes is to, to do it in a, in a thoughtful, active, deliberate discussion where it's almost led by the founder and the mm -hmm. founder almost sort of decides that this is the best thing for him or herself, as well as, as well as for the company that they built. I think the the most challenging transitions are when the ones where the founder has run out of gas everybody around the table knows it but they are unwilling to to realize that is indeed the case and then there's a lot of friction that that occurs mm -hmm. and you know the ones that have the, the 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 gas to go the full set of miles and and beyond no one questions whether they should be running those companies. In fact, if anything, we've become more and more attuned to being supportive of founders all the way through their, their journey, well past public company into complete scaled out, you know, situations like the ones I just mentioned earlier. And I think most, most boards and most investors and most management teams and employees and just constituents, shareholders in general, would all be excited by that, but I think mm -hmm. I think that's not always the case. That's that's sometimes that's more the exception than the rule, and I think it will always behoove, you know, founders, no matter where they are in their journey, to just take stock of, you know, how far they can take it and to find the right level of support if they're not the ones to take it all the way to the promised land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, George. I'm. I'm also reflecting on something that you said earlier, because I was thinking about, you said after you left Salesforce, you went through this process where you built a whole new set of professional skill sets mm. in areas mm. that you hadn't previously had a lot of experience, but you also said you sort of reset personally. And mm. I think for, for all of the CEOs that I have interviewed, the Breakline Arena, the personal infrastructure is so crucial in to to inform and support their professional success as well. And I'm just curious your perspective on that, you know, as as someone who's both built companies and now you're investing in companies for people who are interested in entrepreneurship should they be thinking about getting their personal house in order in the, in some way? in preparation for the intensity of building a business? And if so, what, what are your recommendations? Uh, what I like to now say is it's always a startup at work and it's a startup at home, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I don't think there's any ever any moment that you can almost have your, call it personal house in order before you go build yeah. you know, something. I, I would say... You know, looking back on what what, what my wife Anne and I went through uh, when we came back to the Bay Area in 2007, and I was working at SAP for a few years. The reason we came back, uh, ironically enough, was her job. She was at working at Pfizer. She had just finished business school at, at NYU Stern, and she was poached the day she graduated out of NYU Stern to go to Gilead Biosciences, and that's what brought us back to the Bay Area. Wow! And I was right in the middle of a you know pretty critical and fun interesting job working for the the chief marketing officer of sap and uh, my, my entire job was to help do all the strategy and strategy planning for at that point like an 800 million dollar marketing service line inside of you know it was sap's marketing budget uh, that that i worked for marty homelish on and i did that for about a year and the job was supposed to at least be a year and a half or two right because you, you know people did purposely rotate into that job because you get the right experience to get to the next level of leadership and i had to think about that conversation with marty and say six months before i was done that i had to leave the job and it was because you know and had found the ultimate brand job that she wanted to become a, a brand manager for, for at that time, a, a very small biotech, which of course became a very big biotech over the years with uh, Gilead Biosciences. And, and I moved because, because there was a big presence here for SAP in Palo Alto and I would kind of figure out what would happen. And I didn't know exactly what my next role was, but I had enough enough good connections in place that that it would it would lend itself to to finding that role and it turned out that ended up in product strategy and the product strategy was the first ones to look at the non-ERP side of SAP and 
Uh, we were on the team that uh, initially made the decision to acquire something in the in the BI space, and that's where the business objects acquisition occurred. And I was part of that team, and away you go, right? And suddenly, like a whole new career trajectory emerges. But in the midst of all that, like our first child arrived in '08, mm. right? And and our our second one arrived, you know, in in 2011, right? And 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 our third one arrived in 2013, mm-hmm. and we were, you know, we we were a couple who was told we probably would have a challenge having any kid at all, and we ended up having three three girls, and they're all wonderful. And I think I think if you if you go back and look at that and say, hey, did we have our, our personal lives in order <laughs> before before making all these changes, right? And and by the way, I I, I you know I left uh, I, I I left for for Alteryx in 2011, the year that my my second child arrived, right? So I, I, I don't think that there was any moment that anyone would would say that we had all, everything personally in order before we made the professional, at least I made the professional switch from big, you know, company like SAP that that, that you have this, this safety blanket that that's wraps you around in terms of whatever you do to to, to taking the, the jump into into startup land with a with a, with a with a tiny but but interesting growing concern like Alteryx back in 2011. So I I I just generally would would advise anyone who is thinking about these things like you know have a have a significant other that you can at least have these conversations with be able mm-hmm. to balance what you know their interests and needs are versus the things that you're doing and make sure that they're aligned in a way that both both uh, yourself and your significant other can agree that this is the the near term plan and then and then assume that you know chaos is the latter at the end of the day <laughs> and and, uh, and at some point at the point you know you both end up figuring it out i think it's actually something you always have to work on too like even now i know that where where i had a lot of just good communications even up to this point, this past year, even going through COVID, like we had some, we get, we actually got in a lot of ways closer together as, as a couple, but even this past year, it wasn't COVID that, you know, kind of disrupted some of those communications. It was my new job. Like I just, mm. you know, realized like there was a whole set of things that I was just now over rotating work-wise that I just wasn't probably spending as much time being as communicative as I should be as a husband and a, a and as a father and something that now I know I need to really improve upon going into into 22 but but I think I think if somehow we say that hey we have to have all of our ducks in a row on a <laughs> you know professional or personal basis to to make a professional change or yeah I just don't know if that's how the world really works I think mm-hmm. I think I think you just have to have to see those opportunities as they come and uh, have an open set of communications, particularly in your personal life, to to seize upon them when they come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me. I mean, just starting a company is so hard, and you just have to want it to such an unrealistic degree. <laughs> you know, to for it to be worth the risk and the the heartache and the disruption in some senses, and um. And I just respect the spouses of entrepreneurs so much, you know, of entrepreneurs and early stage teams, because it's not, I mean, this is a team sport. And that's right. Your spouse, like when, when you were talking about Anne taking the leap to, to Gilead, like you had to, that was a meaningful shift for you too, that you had to be on board with and same when you went from SAP to Alteryx. And so I just have a ton of respect for for the spouses who show up and say, it is so important for you to have this experience that I'm gonna be 100% behind you, even if it impacts me in a way that's uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and I think that that is probably one of the, the most important conversations you could have with your significant other when and as these transitions occur in your career, right? That support system that is 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 provided by your family, your friends, you, you know, particularly your, your your spouse and 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 your nuclear family is is so critical. 
I, I think that the times when things don't work out on a professional level and, and the times when things don't work out on a personal level, in both of those cases, the commonality is the lack of communication, right? Mm. If you kind of think about, you know, where, you know, some of, you know, we talked about, you know, one of my bigger failures in, in my own personal career, or in my professional career, I should say, um, a lot of it was just like, probably could have communicated better, right? Pro mm -hmm. Probably could have managed that, despite the fact that there was a lot of headwind in a, in a better way. I mean, uh, I think it also is the same thing to be said in, in, in your personal life, right? It's like when you have a lot of things going on in your professional life and you're not doing a good job communicating about what's happening and it's a little bit of a black hole, right? For your, your spouse, your significant other, and that's when that's when those relationships can also go sideways. And so, so that's that's something. Even even this past year, I, I realized I, I generally felt I was pretty decent at it. And and I realized like okay, like I I missed the, the I missed the ball on mm -hmm. on at least the the transition into venture capital where I you know underestimated what it would take at least from a a work and professional time commitment perspective that chewed into my my personal life in a way that I just probably needed to to have a stronger set of discussions while it was happening as it was happening at you know after you know you get through a, a year one like this where I think not having those the, those those discussions didn't necessarily help right and now mm. <laughs> I'm noticing like I have to actually go back and, and clear the air in a lot of ways because I didn't have those discussions in 2021. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, with our that's, team. That's at... my way of saying I might be in the doghouse right now. Uh... <laughs> we, all take, we all take our turn, George. There you go. Turn. But it's like for, you know, for our, our significant others, our spouses and our teams, that the adage that you can never over communicate, you know, we just have to keep learning that lesson. <laughs> especially when you're under a lot of pressure and you think you're communicating like it I, don't, I just kind of staying present in that mantra that other people need to hear from you even when it's hard and perhaps especially when it's hard I think that I think you're right that's the key to success on both sides of the house that's exactly right George, I know we only have a couple minutes left and I'm, I'm curious on, on your perspective on one last question, which is, as you know, we, Breakline works with three communities today, veterans, women, people of color, and they're often folks who are transitioning from one type of industry into tech. And I, like, I sometimes wish that we had a magic set of binoculars or something that could give them the context or the crispness in terms of seeing the world as someone like you sees it and being able to weigh decisions the way that you would see it. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my friends who's a, a veteran and he graduated from Stanford Business School in 2006. And in 2006, mm -hmm. he had an offer from Google and an offer from Microsoft. And he couldn't figure out which one was sort of the better option for career growth. And at that time, someone who was in the know would have said, go to Google, <laughs> like it's uh -huh. about to take off, just like go, you know, and, you know, and companies go through different waves and, 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 and that's true for both of those companies. But at that moment in time, it was clear to people in Silicon Valley, which company to choose, but he couldn't see it that way because he didn't have the context. And so I'd love for you to just share any of your advice with your context. If you were to roll back the clock, maybe 15 years, and you were starting sort of at that early to midpoint of your career again, where would you want to go? What types of companies would you be looking at? What subsectors of the industry would interest you most, most in terms of career growth and opportunity and, you know, access to some of the most interesting companies in the world. Like, how would you advise our community to, sure. to think about the next phase of their careers? So the first, the first piece of this puzzle that I, that I would kind of call out is that 
software is this incredible growth industry, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, Devin Perek, one of our, our managing directors and founders said that, that software in a lot of ways is God's greatest gift to capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And and the reason that we, 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 we can stand by, uh, you know, kind of the, the statement like that, it, it was it was in set in humor, but 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 there is something about what was said there, is that software continues to be able to scale in a way that we've never seen any industry scale, right? Because mm-hmm. you see enormous retention rates, great gross margins. You see this ability to be able to transform how key business functions work with the enablement and automation and use of software. So I think when you kind of look at it in that backdrop, if you're in technology, but more specifically, if you're in software, be willing to just take a risk or two, right? And and, and I think your example was a great one, right? If it was Microsoft versus Google, or it was Microsoft versus like, pick your name, it doesn't matter. Take the risk, it's okay, because what's the worst that can happen? Like, you're gonna fail, you're gonna learn a few things from that failure, and then you're gonna come out and do something great from the fact that you have learned from that experience. And in a growth industry like software, you're always going to learn, like, and you're probably going to learn more in the risks that you've taken and the challenges that you've had to, to circumnavigate as you go through the, your, your professional career. And oftentimes the hardest ones are the ones the challenges that you run into are the ones where you're just in the riskiest of, you know, whatever that sort of sector of software is. So I, I, I generally try to tell everyone that I've, I've, you know, had a chance to encounter with that asks questions like this, you know, should I do the startup? And I was like, yeah, you should. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, the worst that can happen is it doesn't work out and you can go back to the safety net of a, of a big company and they'll gladly take you back because of your software experience mm-hmm. um, in a startup, right? And and because of how much how much you've learned from 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 even a, a a startup not working out. So I think I think that's that's the first backdrop, right? That that it's it's okay in a growing industry to take a greater amount of risk and and part the the best manifestation of that risk is to be on that extreme end of of uh, of founding or starting or being part of uh, an early startup journey even if it doesn't work out you, you can you can recover and still you know be part of part of the just the growth in the software industry in general the, i think the, the the second part of that is it's important to pick the domains that that are the high growth elements of software so if we look at the next 10, 15 years of where software is headed. I mean, what's the areas of software that are really going to to be differentiated and really going to create more value than not? Well, no surprise, you know, vertical SaaS, right? Because, you know, as software becomes more specified by domain, like there's going to be more verticalized software that's going to be necessary. Uh, Data, like data continues to grow in exponential scale. And so anything that can handle data at scale it, you're just going to be in a good place because you have the structural tailwind of all this growth and data behind you. Um, the workloads that are related to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Well, you know, now that you've like grown this large swath of data, how do you understand, how do you automate, how do you make better insightful decisions using algorithms that are more available to help you drive better answers out of that data that you're you're leveraging. And so these these AI ML workloads become more important. I mean you go further out into, you know, where the sector is. I mean, think about distributed finance, think about, you know, the blockchain, think about um, cryptocurrencies. Like there's there's plenty of these these opportunities, particularly in the in the software sector, that if you look at the next five years and the next ten years, the next fifteen years, and you just kind of skate to where the puck is going to be versus where it is currently, you'll just generally end up in a better place. Like because you've, you know, taken that risk, some of those risks will really work at itself out and some of them may not. I, I, I still remember when I left SAP in 2011, I was literally at the prime of my career at SAP. I was probably three or four weeks away from making senior vice president SVP at SAP and 
I said to everyone, well, I'm leaving because I'm going to go help the founder of Alteryx go build a great company in the data analytics space. And everyone's like, wait a minute, you're running the business objects BI division. You've got the job that anyone would want. Why would you ever leave to go help, you know, a small, tiny startup in that space? Well, guess what? It's like that opportunity worked out and it turned out that we were able to create a generational transformation in how data analysts had better self-service tools in their hands, like Alteryx and Tableau, defined that entire generation of software for data analytics. And if I didn't do that, guess what? Someone else would have done that. It wouldn't have been me. And so, so I, I thought about that a lot, actually, when I, when I left SAP. It wasn't that I, I was running away from anything. I love my time at SAP, and I, I would have probably spent another decade there. But I thought about well, you know what, if I didn't go take that job and help build that next generation of self-service analytical tools, like someone else was gonna do it. And and man, would I be kicking myself if it wasn't me that was the person <laughs> that did it. Uh, and, and it turned out like that that was all I needed to have the impetus to 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 go and, 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 and build Alteryx and work with, with, uh, with the founder and the rest of the management team and end up with the, the great outcome that, that it became. And so, so I, I, I generally would, would really, really encourage anyone who's, who's making this transition, particularly in the break-on community, if they're going to enter into this space and they're naturally inclined to work in software, take a little bit more of an extra risk like don't just go at the you know where the puck might be at that present moment just skate a little bit further ahead and and, and pick an area where it might be in the future be okay with the fact that you know you might fail once or twice when you make that riskier choice but you can always have a fallback of coming back to a big company if you ever want to you're not going to you're not going to be shunned out of a big company because you had some challenges in in you know the the hardship of of building inside of a startup environment. And and generally just make sure that when you're doing that and you're trying to skate to where the puck is, just have a point of view on you know, the next five, 10 years or 15 years of where it's all gonna go and at least try to pick some of the categories that, that have some structural tailwind associated with it. And I kind of called out three or four, there's probably quite a few more than that, but but just kind of gives you a way to, to, to unpack this, to have a successful career as anyone at Breakline is, making their transition into technology and software. I'm so glad that you articulated those insights and I would boil them down to guts plus heart. And I think that that's what this entire conversation has been about, you know, really having the courage to go after something that's meaningful for you and then having a lot of compassion and empathy for the customers that you're serving and the team that you're building the company with. I just think that's such a cool framework to build a career around and to live your life around. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Yeah, I, I, absolutely, Bethany. I, I really appreciate this opportunity to have this time and, and really have this discussion. One of the things that, that I had a hard time articulating some of those things that you just said, right? Because it was never clear, like there was like a way to live this, this sort of authentic version of yourself and really build to better outcomes, particularly in a, in a sector that just it always isn't necessarily this way. Like, you know, the, the brashest, the, the loudest people that uh, are not necessarily in this, this sort of category of leadership are the ones that, that get touted the most, right? But, but, I, but I now have like some inspiration that even in, in media, like, so, so one of my favorite shows right now is Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've, uh, you've seen yes. it, but like, but like it, it's, it's an amazing story, right? Because you have this, you have this person who is like put in this like incredibly awkward circumstance and he, through the, through, through just like sheer belief and kindness, like generates this this enormous amount of success that surrounds him and and everyone who who believes in in the way that Ted believes in things, and I think that, that that's that's something to be said about that. Like like I think one part of this whole journey is like you are, you know, making an opportunity not only for yourself but just enormous set of people that are that are following you and believing in you and. You don't see that until you go through this at the 
at the tail end of any one of the these journeys. Like so, it's only after the fact, right, that you you have a conversation with like, say, for instance, the people you worked with at like Salesforce or SAP or Altrix, and you have this discussion that like, wow, like we did this together and we changed the way that something occurred in that specific aspect of the space by the fact that we just were believing that there was a different way of doing things and we attacked it with 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 heart with courage and with this belief that there there should be a difference that was being made and we did it without being jerks like we we we, we were good people like we, we we had fun doing it and i think there's there should be more of that i i really think that there should be there should be more more ability to do great things with a level of understanding and kindness and i i just had no real way to quantify that and to express that until until frankly I started to see Ted Lasso and I was like wait a minute this is it this is this is actually you know in this sort of story of like you know this this crazy midwestern guy ending up in the UK you know leading a a, a football team uh, a, a great example and I think I think there's there's something to be said about that in in any any part of your personal and professional journey and at least in the case of the technology software sector, I think there's more Ted Lasso's that are frankly needed in the world. So yeah, with that being said, Bethany, I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to to have this discussion with the, the Breakline community and uh, looking forward to continuing this conversation, this journey for the foreseeable future. Thank you so much, George. And thank you for lighting the path in a new way and role modeling a different type of leadership that's also incredibly successful. It's so inspiring to me and to our community. Really appreciate the time with you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. Tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. It helps us continue to share this great content. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, we just love to hear what you what you'd have to say about some of the content that we're putting out there. So Please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime, Sophia Bodwin. We will see you next week. <laughs>